I'd be lying if I said that it might not be a bit to do with the fact that we went out with the NCT people mm. last night. And it turns out that none of the men are staying sober in sympathy with their wives. Wow. And there's lots of com- camaraderie and the one of the first baby's been born and everything. So it's kind of like the dad was there and he was eager to get very drunk. I'm not sure what that says about being a new dad. Well, yeah. And I was really super caffeinated after lunchtime. I don't know if I came across as caffeinated while we were talking. <laughs> I've tried to cut back a little bit in the last year or so. So normally if I'm going to go to Starbucks, I won't drink tea at my desk. But I kind of forgot that in the morning and I had two mugs of tea and then I had the mug and a half of latte at the Starbucks and that sent me buzzing. And then I had my first beer in the evening and I just didn't know what was going on (laughs) at all. Because alcohol is a very specific sort of drunk and it's actually quite consistent with other times you've been drunk. Whereas caffeine is just completely disorienting. I was just completely zoned out. It was very strange. Now, I um, don't drink coffee. So any sort of caffeine that I do get would either come from fizzy drinks or from tea. I don't have fizzy drinks all that often. Um, I don't drink energy drinks or anything like that. So I guess I get a little bit from tea. But um, a couple of weeks ago, I had my first official coffee uh, by my standards, not necessarily by anybody else's. Every so often, Jane uh, likes to get a box of special sachets of like cappuccino or double cappuccino or all that kind of stuff, you know, where it's all just like all powder and then you pour it in the mug and you mix it all up and then you've got a rough approximation of a posh coffee. Does she get it delivered from justcoffee.coop.com? No, just buy it in a supermarket. It's just Nescafe stuff. No, not any of this uh, wacky hipster coffee pig stuff that, you know, you might do. <laughs> oh, I'm cut to the quick. That's what I was drinking all morning <laughs> yesterday. Uh, yeah, so the last time we got a couple of those boxes, one was a double chocolate mocha. For most coffee drinkers, that's more hot chocolate than coffee. Yeah. But for me, that was more coffee than anything. Because I've got a strange, like, almost double standard with coffee in the same way that I do with tomatoes in that the item itself, the tomato itself, I can't abide, but like tomato soup, tomato ketchup, tomato puree, tomato and pasta sauces, all those sorts of things I can cope with. And with coffee, it's very similar. Like if you present me with a slice of coffee and walnut cake, I'll be your best friend forever because that's really (laughs) nice. So the coffee flavor in itself, I don't necessarily have too much of a problem with, but just it's liquid form regardless of how it's made, I've always found to be just, like, too unpleasant, too unpalatable Oh, it's it's really not nice. But then I had this mug of um, coffee-flavoured hot chocolate, and um, I found it remarkably drinkable. So I got through the whole mug, and I think I would have experienced my first coffee kick. Now, it's not going to be big, because it's not like hardcore coffee, and, you Mm. know, maybe... I need a gateway drug, to be honest. <laughs> it's entry level, yeah. Yeah, otherwise I might have just climbed the nearest tallest tree and thought I could fly and <laughs> ended up with uh, broken <laughs> limbs. Um, so, I mean, I noticed that afternoon that I was a, light, a little bit more alert. And I'm like, oh, is this what coffee does? For the first 10 years, that's what coffee does. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking, <laughs> actually, I could not that I could get used to having coffee. I'd rather not have it all that often. And I probably wouldn't ever have coffee coffee. It'll probably just be this fake hot chocolate coffee if I ever have it. But uh, yeah, that was really interesting just to have that. 
because um you know even though i have tea i think most of the time i'm not caffeinating myself in a way that many people do caffeinate themselves either by having several mugs of tea or coffee or an energy drink or whatever so it's interesting that with this coffee or every now and then if i have like a can of dr pepper or something that i get this like oh <laughs> i can still get the jolt from it I had to stop drinking Coke and try to cut back from drinking tea and coffee at work because, and I probably told you this before, that there was a point at which I realised that not only was I not getting anything from the coffee at all, I was actually tired all the time if I didn't drink coffee and then actually I started getting quite actually still being tired even when I had been drinking it I just wasn't getting any benefits from it at all so I had to cut right back and that's where I am now but I kind of I I understand with cider and I understand with juices and stuff like that but I'm always vaguely suspicious of anyone who claims to like the flavor in and of itself of tea coffee or beer because it strikes me that those are entirely things that people drink because they like the effect and then they kind of program themselves into associating the taste with the kick they get from it or mm. or whatever because none of those things taste really that nice. I don't understand why people drink Guinness for a start. It's kind of all of those stouts and everything and coffee, they all kind of taste a bit like mud. And I always think of tea as as more of a delivery method for sugar and biscuits and distraction. <laughs> I suppose it depends on the way that you drink tea as well, because obviously for most people that's just a standard builder's tea, isn't it? It's yeah. a, a main brand tea bag, some milk and sugar to taste. Um, whereas I very rarely have a builder's tea. I packed that in a long time ago. It's either been Earl Grey or green tea or something like that, in which case I am sort of going partially for the taste. But that said, of course, um, as soon as it gets below well even if it hits lukewarm actually but as soon as it gets below lukewarm it's hideous it's disgusting it has to be warm if it's not warm the flavor's different and not so nice i'm sure it's the same with coffee as well i've never had uh, actually thinking about it i've never had like hot sprite um no that's weird i don't know why you would it's disgusting <laughs> isn't it um, i'm just thinking i mean if a if tea or coffee once it gets cold tastes disgusting does if a fizzy drink is heated and we're not talking about like it's just sat on the windowsill for a little bit but if you actually boiled it yeah i'm not going to try but that's um that's something for the scientists yeah that's interesting I'd, I'd be interested to find out about that because i do actually like the taste of some fizzy drinks so if you could have them as a hot drink because i drink a lot of those sorts of teas as well now because of my tea pigs thing, yeah. um, not a sponsor, hipster, <laughs> independent vendor, authentic feeling, a company that's owned by one of the big tea companies, tea pigs. Yes. I only really notice the taste if, it, if the taste is bad. It feels to me like the teas are a way of making boiling water smell nice enough that you want to drink it. <laughs> I might actually have something wrong with my taste buds. I'm becoming aware of this. Because people do seem to genuinely enjoy tea and coffee, and I just don't really get it. And I don't really understand sliced bread either. I tend to think of that as a delivery method for margarine, or spread, or whatever you're supposed to call it. I don't understand it. It's political correctness gone mad. Mm. With the caffeine jolts, like, I see this quite a lot, but the people who you see like first thing in the morning, and, the, and they're already necking from a can of Red Bull or Monster or some other energy drink first thing in the morning... I'm thinking, well, you haven't even given your body a chance to wake up and get used to the day before you've absolutely cacked it up with chemicals. 
Like you haven't given yourself a chance to find out what your natural levels are before you've just injected yourself with, I don't know, paint thinner or whatever. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, it's just like, give yourself a chance. You know, it might be all right. Have a few glasses of water. You might just be okay. I will very occasionally have a Red Bull in the mornings, very occasionally. And I've realized that it isn't, it is on the mornings when I feel particularly tired, but I actually think that it's also on the mornings when I really hate myself the most. Because <laughs> the thing I really like about Red Bull is with Red Bull, you can actually feel the chemicals working on your body straight away. Not in a good way. You can feel them <laughs> yeah. melting your insides from the moment they get in there. And that's where the buzz is, really. I don't know if it's a necessarily a buzz that hits my brain. I just can feel it melting my insides and I know I'm doing something <laughs> to my insides and uh, I, I've lost that feeling with Coca-Cola I know abstractly that you can clean rust off a spoon or something if you stick it in Coke but I, I, I've lost that feeling that it's doing the same thing to my insides I wonder if there's a six steps of separation between Coca-Cola and Silip Bang <laughs> yeah I mean <laughs> I imagine they're worryingly close to each other because they both can shine up pennies can't they yeah I've never drunk Silip Bang Maybe I should try it after the podcast. Maybe. I don't think it I comes with that as a serving suggestion, however, so you sort of, you might be going um, off the dial. I'm pretty sure it actually suggests you don't do that. What do they know? <laughs> yeah, damn the man trying to tell me how to uh, consume products. I'm, I'm wondering if it was a bad idea, but because I was feeling a little bit over-caffeinated yesterday, mm. I decided tonight I wasn't going to be drinking. I'm drinking um, Dreamy Dreamtime Tea. Dreamy Dream Dreamtime. Dreamy Dream Dreamtime Tea from uh, Wittards, the uh, zombie tea vendors in town who were dead, but then they weren't dead anymore. We've got a pack of Dreamtime Tea that I think has been in the cupboard for about a year, so I have to scrape the... It's like powder, and I have to scrape it out of the thing. And it's not even really like tea. It's like this really sickly sweet... I think it's like based on Turkish flavours, so there's cinnamon in there and... Oh, um, I can't imagine there are that many people that have had uh, what could be called a genuine vintage tea. No, exactly. That you've had on the tea rack for the best part of a year. It's, I don't even know how it gets classed as a tea. It's like a soluble powder. It's more like Lemzip or something. Lemzip's not a tea, is it? No. It's, um, it's a lemon-sipping drink. <laughs> We're failing on taxonomy completely. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to edit that out. For drink? Yeah, I think maybe. <laughs> Unanswered. Let's change the topic. Yeah. And funny enough, we're talking about change. That's my partridge for this evening, by the way. That was liquid podcasting. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the the main the reason I brought it up earlier on is we're quite similar in some of the things we like and some of the things we like to talk about, but we're very different about the way we approach our lives, I think. I feel like I'm maybe a bit more chaotic, possibly, okay. in my approach and uh, in the way my brain works than you are. I always feel like you're, and you might laugh at this, but maybe a bit more organised, a bit more considered when you make the big decisions yeah i think that would be fair a bit more not totally or completely oh we could both do a being better probably yeah. <laughs> i'm sure i haven't even read chapter one of getting things done yet but i've read like the acknowledgements and some of the introduction stuff so i've i've at least started the book it's 
copyright David Co. 2001, I believe. <laughs> I guess what I'm curious about, I, the thing that's come up a little bit recently, because you know I'm having a baby. Did you know I was having a baby? Um, I, I heard a rumour. I haven't mentioned it a lot. I'm trying to keep it on the download. But, sure. And one of the things someone asked me uh, recently at work, but the, one of those sorts of things that seems to come up quite a lot and that I'm really, I'm really, really noticing when I see it on social media at the moment, I've always kind of quite liked kids in an appropriate way. Mm. I've always found that they're quite sweet and I like people's, I like my friends' babies and stuff like that. And so I've never really understood this thing that a lot of people in, I guess, our situation, which is no longer in their really early 20s, because you're supposed to hate everything in your early 20s anyway, um, but, like, who haven't already settled down and had kids by the time they're 25 up to 40, which is where I am now, where I understand people being ambivalent to children, but there's Mm -hmm. an awful lot of people who are actually really anti the idea of ever having babies. Oh, God, why would I want to? They're just disgusting and all of that stuff. So I've yeah. really been conscious of that. And recently, somebody asked me, and I think it was partly because somebody had been giving him a hard time. I think he was projecting a little bit. He said, so who is the selfish one? Is it you who decides to have a child? Or is it me who decides not to have a child? And I said, well, it wasn't really a decision. I just... Uh, I guess neither's really selfish. I mean, why why would either one be selfish? They're just one person decides to do one thing and the other person decides to do another. And he said, but isn't it selfish? Isn't it uh, selfish to uh, have a child when we already don't have enough resources and all this stuff? And I was like, I, I kind of feel like this wasn't actually a question you were asking me. I think you've already kind of made the decision. Um, but we got in we got into this little uh, th- this little conversation where he was trying to justify his decision not to have children. I don't think it's really a decision. I just think it hasn't happened Uh, and i was trying to explain to him that it wasn't really a decision it's just something that happens i could have had a child well not at any point in my life because there weren't always women who were who were willing to allow me to even practice having children with them but you know there have been points in my life where i could have had children and there have been points in my life when i could have got married there have been points in my life when i could have moved in with people which i'll get back to in a second I don't feel like the reason it's happened now is necessarily because I decided to do it. I don't think I make life changes like that. It's just it either happened or it didn't. Life kind of just hits me. I pretty Mm. much go with the flow of whatever the person I'm with at that particular time wants to do. And I don't think other people run their lives like that. For you, you haven't felt like like being a parent was something you ever ruled out. So it wasn't, um, but it wasn't like um, you kind of hit puberty and all of a sudden you were thinking, I want to be a dad. No, exactly. It's my life's goal to father children. Because I've decided you speak like that. But only when you were like, I don't know, 13. Yeah. Then it changed. My voice unbroke. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I talked like Matt Matt Berry up until uh, the age of 18 and then my voice unbroke. And then a strange transformation occurred. Um, you hadn't ruled out parenthood, uh, you know, from a young age, but you you weren't gunning for it either. It was just like a, it was a switch you were happy to leave alone, basically. When the time comes, when I think about it, yeah, I'll flip that switch. Because I think there are some people, in in my experience, it's more women than men, it has to be said, but there there are some people that really want to have a child. And it's not like they're, you know, they're so desperate, they'll hump anything that moves in order to get one, but they factor it into their path, their direction depending on the person you are, 
you can either let that thing happen naturally or you want to give yourself a window in which it happens because you've thought that far ahead um in which case congratulations because that's that's more further ahead than i've ever thought <laughs> because the thing that stems me from making such long-term plans is the fact well i might die <laughs> so let's not get my hopes up um no that's that's kind of my reason i might <laughs> die and generally i don't have the drive to make things happen so the one thing i thought i was definitely going to be doing by the time i was 30 was i decided i was going to be a writer a published writer mm-hmm. and i decided that when when i was about 20 and i figured 30 is a good age but I, I never actually did anything to make it happen and then i decided it was going to be 35 and then i decided it was going to be 40 i've never actually done anything to make it happen so it's just better for me not to make five-year plans because they're just a delivery mechanism for disappointment yeah pretty much yeah for you like i said it's like um it was a switch that wasn't fixed so it wasn't like you had any thought in your mind, damn, by the time I'm 40, I really need to be a dad. You, you never really thought it like that, because I guess the thought hadn't crossed your mind until all of a sudden it made sense. Yeah, I mean, it has struck me quite a few times recently that 40 is quite late to be starting <laughs> this stuff. But that's more about feeling creaky than anything else. It's not really about any sort of planned out destiny or, or, or anything like that. Mm. largely it is because when i'm in a relationship i will tend to i'm just grateful to (laughs) be there most of the time and always kind of have been that's that's one of those situations where who you are as a teenager really doesn't change no matter what experience tells you i'm always just grateful that they're showing an interest so i'll tend to do what they want especially when it's something i'm open to like moving in with each other i'm open to babies I'm I'm open to and we're kind of we are settled so it makes sense but again it wasn't really a decision it's just kind of the foundation kind of builds to a point I'm not I'm not trying to build a mountain which is my grown-up life it's just if you keep shoveling this isn't a good analogy because it it, it makes life sound I'm gonna um use dirt as an analogy for life for nice experiences but if you keep shoveling dirt onto a stable foundation eventually you're going to end up with a mound and then eventually you're going to end up with a mountain it isn't actually possible for a human to build a mountain that way but you catch my drift i didn't set out to build a building it's just when you start laying enough bricks you'll get there eventually that's Mm -hmm. kind of how everything in my life has ever happened that's why my skyscraper isn't particularly tall which isn't uh, an innuendo it's just a really bad analogy but i mean the slightly weird one was getting married because in the end getting married kind of did end up being a decision and i'm skipping around a little bit but that kind of did end up being a decision because i've never been that fussed with the idea of it Uh, unfortunately this this ends up being one of those situations where i project my opinion on marriage onto almost everyone to everyone else (laughs) so whenever we talk about um equal rights to marriage and stuff like that i'm kind of like i don't understand why everyone's fighting over something that's so irrelevant (laughs) which uh which was another bit of my wedding speech that maybe i should have cut out but yeah so that's the one thing that i didn't really understand that's the one thing i've i've never really I understand wanting a house, because that's nice. I understand wanting babies, because they're fun. But marriage is literally one of those things that's only important because it is important to some people. It's such a completely abstract thing, it feels like. Okay, well, let's line those three up side by side then. These are the typical adult milestones, aren't they? The uh, the mortgage, the marriage, and the um, the child. It doesn't begin with them, which is a shame, because <laughs> you could get a nice little system out of it. Yeah. Um, 
Oh, muggle, that's Harry Potter, isn't it? That's not gonna work. <laughs> um, you put those three uh, side by side, and it seems like the one that you weren't that fussed about actually potentially represents the biggest change. Would that be fair? So marriage, it's not like you don't get it, but it wasn't, it, perhaps it wasn't the most important thing to you. But that in accepting that getting married might be a good idea, maybe that represents a bigger change, perhaps not necessarily in the path that your life is taking, because clearly you wouldn't get married if you didn't believe the partner you were with was worth being with, like long term. But the fact that perhaps that requires a more of a turnabout on your part personally to do it. I, yeah, I see, I see what you mean now. I was, yeah. I was poised there to go, well, no, actually. All right. <laughs> Shut up, you don't know what you're talking about. But maybe, that, maybe that's a separate point uh, that we'll probably make in a second, actually. Okay. But, um, but um, what, what happened was I got to a point and it was a combination of me being in my mid-30s and realising I'd kind of run the gamut of good relationships and, and bad ones and really fiery relationships and really good ones with nice people that didn't work out and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's this kind of a combination of where, where I was at that point mm. and uh, the person I met. Now, I love my wife so much and she's so good to me and she basically looks after me quite a lot because I'm a bit of an idiot when it <laughs> comes down to it but there were plenty of points in my life where I had been out with people for as long as I had been out with her at that point mm. and in my head I was comfortable with staying with that person for the rest of their life I know it uh, the rest of their life the rest of my life the way I tend to approach relationships, and this obviously isn't for everyone, but I, I probably wouldn't stay with someone for more than like about six months. I, I tend to have made a, a sort of a commitment in my head by that point that, well, I, I'm obviously seeing a future in it, not in a crazy stalker, oh, we have to be with each other for the rest of my life sort of thing. But that if if I'm not starting to feel there's a future in it, after six months, I probably wouldn't want to waste any more time than that sure even then i'm not necessarily thinking i want to grow old with this person i'm just thinking i can see this working out and i wouldn't say that i necessarily felt any different there wasn't anything that different about how i felt when i was with my now wife but what really shifted in my head, it almost wasn't a decision. It was almost an anti-decision because I realized it didn't all happen at once. But I, I got to a point, she really wanted to get married anyway, which was really the main driver. That must be quite flattering as well. Oh, yeah, it's nice. It is really nice. Yeah, I realized at, at this point when I've been with this person for as long as I've been with this person, I can't remember if we'd actually bought a house by that point or we were starting to seriously look at buying houses. I kind of realised that at that point, when the other person wants to get married, and you're like 35, or in, you know, in my case I was 35, not getting married starts to seem more like a decision than getting married would do, if you see what I mean. That doesn't sound mm -hmm. particularly yeah. romantic. I keep saying I don't feel that strongly about it, and yet I keep not doing it. And the other person wants to. And I think the even less romantic side of it was I kind of realised at that point, well, look, not most of the people, but lots of people by the time they're my age, they're either with someone who they've been with for years that they're married to happily or not, or they've had a couple of divorces by this age anyway. If I get married to her, it's not the end of the world <laughs> if it doesn't work out. 
But, honey. <laughs> honey. But, yeah, but at some point the proposal was brilliant. I mean, she appreciated all of this stuff. I think, I think what I'm getting at was I, I started to realise that I had made other life changes with other girls and had made changes with this girl that were actually a way bigger deal and way more difficult to extricate yourself from than a marriage would be. But the thing is, we got a mortgage with each other, and I I didn't, when I uh, got married, I just had to answer a few questions and sign a marriage certificate. When we (laughs) went to buy a house with each other, I had to sit through endless meetings. We had to talk to solicitors, but suddenly our finances were impossibly, you know, linked in a way that was impossible. Well, not impossible, certainly very difficult to split apart again at any point. You have to get life insurance when you buy a house. If I die, my part of the house gets paid. I think I think that's how it works, and vice versa. I hadn't thought of it till now. In principle, when you buy a house together, you're kind of tied to each other in the event of one of you dying. You know, you're tied to each other till death, which um, is really intense. That's far bigger a commitment than actually getting married to each other. Because in the in the process of buying the house, through the various meetings and, and the obligations, it's like you've had way bigger warnings than you would have done um, had you got engaged, announced the wedding and all that sort of stuff. In those cases, the most you'll hear from people is congratulations or a few stories about how their marriage worked out. And if you're of a religious bent, there may well be some further messages from the church but they tend to be positive and not full of warnings that you have to heed. Whereas it sounds like from going through the house buying process is that there's so much stuff in there that's just basically saying, this is a very big responsibility, don't you know? Mm. Um, It's a real test, isn't it? Because during that process, you've really proven to yourself that this is what you want. By proxy of deciding that, yes, I'd really like to own a house, you have pretty much said, yes, I'm intending to spend a very long time with my partner. Essentially, you're saying, effectively, you're already married. Yeah, well, and you're entering into a commitment, a really long commitment with the bank as well, that you're definitely never going to get out of. That's an uncomfortable threesome. And so uh, we lived with each other, and then we bought a house. Then we got married, and in the run-up to getting married and immediately after it, all Mm. anyone would talk to me about was how different everything was going to be when I got married veiled jokey threats about how everything was going to change and she was going to change completely and then afterwards all anybody could do was ask me so what's it feel like being married how does it feel how different is it and all of this stuff yeah. and i'm like well it genuinely doesn't feel any different from living with someone that i've decided to commit to and i know it's not the most mind-blowing observation that anyone's ever shared if you've got your eyes open about it and you don't think that everything is going to get sorted out or you don't think that everything's going to change and suddenly you're going to be more committed to each other. It literally changes nothing. You know, you get the impression some people think that they've got a slightly lacklustre relationship or something, so what they need to do is get married because that will somehow make them more committed to each other, which doesn't <laughs> yeah. make any sense. Not really. And I guess where this becomes quite interesting is, you know, if you're happy to talk about it, you're cohabiting with your partner now. And I think that's the point at which it really changes. Because that's the big decision. Sharing your space with someone isn't a small decision. I mean, I'm about to have a baby, so I'm told that that'll change things. But it can't be that different from having a dog. It can't be, can it? I think there are some minor physiological differences between the two. Right. Like, one, you're not going to have to take for walks quite so often. 
But I mean, they both they both eat and poop and make a lot of noise. So in in those respects, they're quite similar. I'm sure you'll find it a relatively easygoing experience because you've already had practice with um, with animals. My child will always look into my eyes with um, Fear. complete, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> complete um, unfettered uh, affection and yes. love, and will never judge me poorly in the same way that my dog does. Won't they? I mean, they'll never be disappointed with me. There is absolutely no way my offspring will be disappointed with me at any point in their lives. Yeah, so, uh, but yeah, cohabiting. Amy isn't the first girlfriend I've lived in a house with. And I know that you're, you have done this a couple of times. Mm-hmm. It's a huge change, isn't it? Is it? Is it a huge change to the relationship? In terms of a, of a relationship, in terms of a loving relationship, yeah. Um, deciding to cohabit with a friend um, for convenience, so you can both have a roof over your head, is a slightly different thing. I mean, it's still a big deal because it will impact on your friendship in some ways. When I first moved out of the family home and um, shared a flat with a friend of mine, obviously then you spend a lot more time with that person. Now, you're not romantically linked to them, but the difference between just a common or garden friend and someone that you're in a loving relationship with is that before you move in together, the amount of time that you spend together is different. For example, if you decide to move in with a boyfriend, girlfriend, a partner, maybe both at the same time, it is the future we're living in. You've got it all covered with boyfriend, girlfriend, one well, maybe not. No, actually, forget uh, I said that. Yeah, mostly. Strike that from the record. I don't want to get into any trouble. No. Um, other kin, is that it? Yeah, other yeah, kin. <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't really considered that, which is very rude of me, sorry. Um, but yeah, I mean, with a partner, chances are you would have spent a decent amount of time with them beforehand. Whereas with a friend, you might have only caught up with them maybe once a week or every other week, you know, perhaps, you know, like a Friday evening down the pub sort of thing. Especially when, when I moved in, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't anything except like a phone call or a text message or an email that could keep you connected without uh, face-to-face. Whereas obviously now... It's a different story. If anything, when you move in with a friend or several friends, if you're flatmates, housemates, however it might work out for you, is that you'd probably be exposed to parts of them you wouldn't have ordinarily seen, habits and and that sort of stuff that you wouldn't have seen or considered, that you'd probably already vetted with a partner. Actually, yeah, yeah. You Mm. start spending time with someone, you realise you've hit it off, and so you both kind of want to spend lots of time with each other. So we don't tend to have relationships where you only see the person once every Wednesday for a date and then you're waiting for them to call you. You make friends with them really quickly. You'll tend to hang out with each other quite a lot. Mm. There isn't any of that, um, oh, she's she's an absolute slob and I didn't realise before I moved in with her thing <laughs> that's like a cliche in sitcoms. But I think is also why people are quite often worried about moving in with each other in the first place. Because you're already spending most evenings with them, if you get the chance. I don't know if you've found this, but you almost free up some of your time when you move in with each other. You almost see them less. 
There's an element of truth to that, yeah, certainly. Because what I always used to do, certainly with Amy, because I snore, we, we couldn't really sleep in the same place to begin with. So you rented two houses at different ends of the street. Yeah, yeah, well... <laughs> but there was a tunnel that linked the two, so it was still like you were living together. But in, in, the, um, in, the, in the first few months of the relationship, rather than me staying over there all the time or her staying over with me, I'd stay at hers as late as either of us could manage... And then when it was time for her to go to sleep, I'd walk home. And then I'd normally see her the next evening and we'd have dinner together and the same thing had happened. Whereas now, once you move in with each other, it's kind of you'll watch some TV with each other or whatever. But one of you will normally go to bed at a different time or you'll have stuff to do. So it's enough that they're in the same room or in the same flat. Do you know what I mean? Sticking to each other and hanging out with each other isn't as much of a big deal. So you don't do it as much. I completely interrupted something you were saying. I'd sort of dealt with the effect that moving in with a friend has and, and how the dynamic works there. As I said, I think earlier, when you make the decision to move in with a partner, you've kind of vetted them a little bit more, haven't you? Because vetting them sounds a bit cold and calculating. You're not deliberately doing it, but in the back of your mind, you are thinking about this. Yeah. Because when, you know, if you, if you spend an evening at their place or perhaps even stay the night, you, as well as obviously having a more intimate relationship on a variety of levels, you see a lot more of their habits, their ways, their manners before you make the decision to move in with them, you could easily identify things that you just can't quite handle. But this is a test of whether they're going to be a long or a short-term partner anyway, is whether they're going to, you know, what the balance is between the things that you can put up with and the things that you can't. Unless you're really not clued in, you'll probably figure that out before you move in with them. The so the reason why deciding to cohabit with a partner is still a bigger deal than cohabiting with a, a friend is that you're not necessarily from day one thinking that you're going to be with them for the rest of your life, but certainly for the foreseeable future, at least the first term of a tenancy agreement, yeah. you're thinking that far down the road. So you are staking a claim because the risk is higher, isn't it, essentially? Mm. If you and your friend don't work out, then one of you could move out and you could get another mate in or something like that. Whereas You could maybe even still be friends. Exactly. Whereas with a partner, it's like the chances of the two of you coming out at the end of it and still being on speaking terms isn't so great. I mean, it's not like super pressure, it's not like mortgage and marriage, but it's at least accepting and announcing to yourself, if not to anybody else, this is the real deal, we are serious about this, and we are going to up the level of responsibility we both carry for each other. At that moment in time, when you when you decide to do it, might not necessarily feel like a big change. It can do, I think. It depends how big that decision is in terms of if you're both looking for a place, a new place together, or if one of you is moving into the others, or whether you're actually having to move town, you know, or cross country in order to do this. So in my situation, when Jane and I decided that we would live together, she just moved into the flat that I was renting. We didn't need to go and find anywhere else. We'd sort of decided, well, you spend you know, time here anyway. We're comfortable here. Yours is too small. So just come here. It meant that moving stuff in was really easy, which was nice. I didn't have to pack anything up, which was fab. It was a relatively simple decision to make. I mean, yes, it still required a certain amount of commitment. But by this point, um, how long have we been together? Um, maybe a year and three two or a year and three months but that was enough time for us to feel like that we're not running out of steam soon enough for this to be an issue like moving in together do you know what i mean it's gonna work yeah i see but that would be 
on the easier scale of making that sort of decision. As I said, if it requires both of you looking for a place, that requires a lot more effort. And the two of you are having to negotiate tastes oh, sure. <laughs> in, in the place that you find. So, oh, so you pretty much, that's not as much of a contrast as I thought, you pretty much slid into... It was obviously a conscious decision in the same way ours was, but I, mine didn't feel so much like a decision because we talked about moving in with each other because we were spending lots of time with each other, but Amy was expecting, because she's a girl and therefore has plans that have uh, times <laughs> set on them. Um, interestingly, her times were all much longer than I pictured things happening in because I kind of figured, well, we kind of have a pretty good idea of whether or not it's going to work quite quickly or not whether it's going to work, but um, whether or not you gel. I mean, mind you, I've made very bad decisions on this score in the past, so maybe she's right. But she had a year where she was thinking, well, I'm, we won't move into a place together for at least a year. But what actually happened was her housing situation fell apart in quite a dramatic way after about six months so mm, see this is sounding quite similar actually for jane there was a, there was a change in what she was going to be charged at her flat and yeah. it was just unreasonable i just said well even though previously we had spoke about how we would prefer to live separately for a bit longer it makes more sense to just go let's move in together this solves a lot of problems it's expedient it's, exactly as you were saying earlier, actually, which was really interesting because I can relate to it, is that sometimes living separately can mean you feel that there are greater demands on your time, as you were saying. Whereas if you're together, if you're doing something together, you're not having to write it off as a whole evening. You can just go, well, that's two hours and then I can do something else. Whereas if it's separately, you have to say, well, that's a full evening because as soon as I get home, I can't do anything else. That definitely makes sense. The other thing that kind of ties in with what I was saying is that when the situation comes up, when one of you needs somewhere to live yeah. and the other one has somewhere to live, not making the decision to move in with each other, it's almost more of a choice. It's more deliberate. Than mm. going with the flow. Yeah, it's more deliberate. There's the natural flow of things says it makes more sense that you move in with each other than one of you have to go off and the other one help them find a place and stuff like that. It definitely seems like one of you is making the decision for you to stay apart which would require a more open-minded relationship and for that not to appear weird after a period of time wouldn't it and and certainly some people manage to make it work even in marriages you hear about people who work for six months in another country and the other person doesn't see them yeah. and that seems to work out and i can actually see how not seeing each other for six months could be quite good for <laughs> some relationships mm. but yeah it, it requires a different sort of relationship from the one that uh, amy and i have we both very needy in very different ways as well us being in a house with each other just made more mm. sense and then of course once you live with each other for long enough certainly in the the situation that we were in where we had to have a house because of the dog the lifespan of any housing agreement seemed to always end up being shorter because of the sorts of places we were having to take because we had a dog at that point not buying a house together suddenly becomes a more deliberate decision so it's sort of, and, and again, I mean, I guess I feel the same way about mortgages I do about marriage. I see an awful lot of people making slightly bad financial decisions because they've got it in their head that you have to have the mortgage, you have to own the thing. Oh, there's a parallel between mortgages and marriage. Hadn't considered that. Yep. Mm, it's all about ownership, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> For me, I haven't made... I, it doesn't feel like I decide to change things in this way yeah. at all. It's like um, your hand was forced 
more than you just said, right, stop everything. I've decided to change, you know, yeah. <laughs> that actually events around you have conspired to just sort of push you in a direction in which you were really already agreeable. Yeah, yeah. I think this is something that causes problems for people who make any big decision is... Again, it sounds like you've kind of gone with the natural flow of things rather than making these things happen deliberately. And so maybe you don't have this problem as well. But I always, I always feel like people have these huge expectations of what's going to happen when they do this thing. And the whole problem with expectations is whether things are better or worse, they're hardly ever exactly what you were expecting. <laughs> and I think that causes all sorts of problems for people from postnatal depression to getting married to someone with whom it wasn't working out because you think that's going to make a change yeah. and actually it doesn't. It just makes things worse. All of these things, you know. Well, I mean, not just relationship stuff either, but I mean, if you've made a deliberate decision to move towns, change jobs, um, what other major decisions are there, I suppose? Change gender, potentially. I was going to say, yeah. can't think of anything else that that would require such a big shake-up. You know, there's other stuff like learn to drive or um, other sort of less significant self-improvement stuff, which could still, you know, might not necessarily represent a huge shift in direction, but at least could change the way in time, the way you define yourself. Th those earlier examples are huge and certainly don't easily come as an enforced change. If you change a job that requires you to move, you've probably considered that a little bit more than going, oh, that's it, I've had enough of, insert town here, I'm off somewhere else. Yeah, it's not spur of the moment thing, is it? Although I didn't really feel like I had much agency in the run-up to my mid-30s, I certainly expected things. Or worse, I almost... Well, I don't know if I thought I deserved things to fall into my lap or any of that stuff, but the thing that really happened in my mid-30s was I stopped sweating it. I stopped worrying about how things were going to turn out. <laughs> Yeah. It never worked out well for me. None of the relationships. Actually, this is one of the few times it's happened. I had one really long relationship where the other person had problems and what the nature of those problems were is a controversial issue between me and them. But definitely for both of us, part of the thing we were striving towards within the relationship was if we worked hard enough at it, there would be a point in the future where those problems wouldn't be as big or they'd be mitigated in some way, and then we could get on with it without these things rearing their heads all the time. Yeah. Obviously, history says that, that at some point that didn't happen. Yeah. I think that was possibly one of the few times I really had an expectation of something that required that I actually put effort into, mm. you know, as, as opposed to the... Somebody will just discover that I'm this great writer, even though I'm not really writing anything, which was really <laughs> what I thought was going to happen. Um, I just thought it was going to just happen and I didn't have to practice or anything. But this was one of the few things I genuinely put work into. Well, I think I think what it was really down to was there are fundamental things about people and there are fundamental things about situations that aren't just going to change because you really want them to. Yeah. And that's also the situation that kind of taught me it's something that I kind of had always believed, which was you can't make your plans necessarily based on someone else changing. But what I'm basically getting at is this was one of the few situations where I had an expectation of things. I had a hope more than an expectation of how things were going to go. There was a lot of magical thinking in place. Yeah. But I think there's always a lot of magical thinking in place of expectations. 
unless you are going from one task that you've done a certain way and has been successful before to another task that's similar but maybe bigger. Say you're making films. You can try to do things bigger but have a reliable expectation that if you apply the things you've learned before, you can have an expectation of positive outcomes. But if you're placing a lot of pressure or expectation on something that's quite nebulous that you haven't got any experience of and you've got no reason really to believe that it's going to be awesome or it's going to be a particular way except that you want it to or you've grown up believing for example that what you do is you get married and then you have the two kids and then everything comes to you you know the castle comes to you or whatever there is no reason to believe that's all going to turn out a particular way and thinking that it will can only cause you at best disappointment later on at worst it can turn your whole sense of self and your whole sense of the world completely on its head there are certain big things like organizing a wedding or all of the big things that you hear about being the most stressful ones like getting married not being married interestingly getting married buying a house i guess having a kid all of these things are huge and yet everyone kind of thinks they know what it's going to be like we wouldn't want to enact the change if we didn't have some expectation of what that change was going to bring us oh well it's not trying to shut down your line of thinking but it's it's like we are humans we are mm. inherently regardless of how we might choose to civilize ourselves we are inherently selfish creatures so if there is any decision that we have to make we are asking ourselves in one form or another well what do i get out of it um, yeah that's a really good point actually so if i'm deciding to make this change what do i get out of it that's not to say that um those expectations are well balanced they may well carry the weight of too much emotion or too much expectation, but they exist because they are meant to be the reward of, of the change that you decide to make. I guess it's impatience. Without having much evidence on this, I'm going to guess that it's impatience a lot of the time that feels like the expectation hasn't delivered or has underwhelmed you. Because mm. um, I know nothing about postnatal depression. I don't really want to... to to guess but let's say that in most cases um postnatal depression is relatively short term and it may yeah. well be that the real gains of parenthood are actually long term and so a lot of the uh, the weight of expectation was perhaps is so put on like the instant the baby arrived when really this is someone that you're going to have in your life until the day you die if everything goes well and that being a parent isn't something that lasts for six months. It's going to last for the rest of your life. And so the returns that you get are going to be different, for, potentially from anything you've experienced before. Whereas perhaps the biggest decision was, am I going to get the king-size chocolate bar or the regular-size chocolate bar? Mm, and the return yeah. to that is more chocolate. So I guess it's absolutely fair and just to have an expectation. But how much of yourself are you investing in that? in order to expect this return and how much of you is left behind because if you've invested say over 50 percent in that expectation and you haven't been prepared to be patient or look for compromises well then you've got more of yourself disconnected from you if you see what i mean but if you give more of yourself than you have left and that gets disappointed well then yeah i mean you're not on a good spot 
you obviously have some expectation. You don't get married to someone because you think, "Yeah, I don't really care what happens after this. I'm not. I'm not first." <laughs> you think it's going to be nice. The smart expectation, the one that I think everyone has, is a basic one. They're really broad strokes. It's like, well, it's nice now. This person will not get significantly worse. Yeah. Once we're married, yeah. and we'll have other benefits from it, like uh, there will be more. There'll be more stability and stuff like that. Or um, in the case of having a child, in our case, that there are a few different reasons, but I think that we kind of want to do this. There are a whole bunch of reasons that are really immediate and probably actually quite superficial. Like it's nice to have something to love, something else to love. Babies are cute. If you think they're cute, they're quite cute, and it'll be nice to have one of your own. I think the sort of healthy expectations that I think both Amy and I have are that it'll be quite an adventure. It sounds really mechanical, but interesting. There'll be this little thing. We feel like we have something to add. We're not entirely sure, you know, something to offer. We're not entirely sure what it is, and it'll be interesting to find out. Do you see what I mean? We know we're going to love this thing, and we don't know if it's a boy or a girl. Uh, We know we're going to love this thing. We know we're going to do our best. We're probably going to try really hard, although Amy will probably try a bit harder than me because she just puts more effort into things. And it's going to be interesting to see how it turns out. That all sounds really vague and, and like dangerous thinking. Now, the question I ask you there is, does the Nick of 10 years ago find himself surprised that the Nick of today is thinking in this way? When it comes to children, actually not that much because, I mean, this is kind of quite loose and nebulous thinking. This kind of ties in with how I've always thought about kids and stuff like that. The Nick of 10 years ago would find it far stranger that the Nick of today has a vegetable garden, to be <laughs> honest. They almost spat plan- my drink out. <laughs> <laughs> that involves planning out stuff and, and trying to grow stuff in the garden and, and stuff like that. Now, that is, I'm hoping, is a far more frustrating experience than having a child because you you only do that because you have expectations of growing vegetables that you might be able to eat and stuff like that. And in this country, it doesn't always happen. I just turned 34 and the Steve of 10 years ago would be horrified that I chose of my own free will to buy and wear trousers. (laughs) I have been in jeans for so long that it actually feels like a big deal (laughs) that I've decided to have another option. (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) It really does. It still feels really weird. I've been getting used to it in the last few days. Especially when it's hot, because jeans aren't great in hot weather, and I'm not always going to wear shorts. So I need another option, Nick. (laughs) I've gone for the grown-up responsible adult option, which um, frightens me. I think in a lot of ways, maybe that's something I'm going to grow into in my 40s. That's the next really big change, is thinking more about, like, not always wearing T-shirts. If I started wearing shirts deliberately to work... That'd be a big change. I don't know. I don't know if thirty-year-old Nick would really understand that at all, to be honest. <laughs> but I mean, in terms of that stuff, I haven't really matured that much, to be honest. It's literally right. that little bit of resignation in my mid-thirties. But I, the, one of the um, one of those core things Uh-oh. that I've yep. that I've always kind of thought I'm still here. Don't worry. I just thought you broke. What I was thinking earlier when we when we were talking about this is it's kind of the difference between your expectations being uh, you're reading a book, yeah, 
and you finish one chapter, you're mm-hmm. about to start the next chapter, and because of the way the book's gone so far and because of how, this, how the story is going and everything, you've got two choices. You can either hope and expect that it is going to be entertaining and that maybe it will continue to be as entertaining as before, but something cool will happen. Or you can decide in your head exactly what all of those details are going to be. You can write the story in your head before you get to the next chapter. And I can't help but think that if you do that, the next chapter is going to be disappointing. Because details aren't going to be the details that you came up with. That's really the thing I'm thinking about when I think about this sort of level of expectation. I think it's okay to think it's going to be exciting. You have a kid because you think it's going to be exciting and you know it's going to be hard, but it'll be interesting and you think that you do a good job of it and it'll be interesting to find out how. And if you stay fluid like that, and if you expect it to be hard as well, and you expect not to know all the answers, the hope is it'll be difficult, but it won't be something that completely breaks you. But if you already have mapped out how the first six months of having a baby in your house are going to go, and you've already you already know it's a girl or a boy, and you've already outfitted the whole house, you already even you're even picturing what it's going to look like in certain outfits, then how are you not putting so much pressure on that next part of your life, on that next chapter? There are a lot of other life changes that are sort of undoable, but once you bring a child into the world, you can't put it back. I mean, you can sort of adopt them away or or whatever, but they never disappear. Yeah. And that child could find out in the future that you exist and and want to talk to you. So it's not like you can ever really, you know... Get rid of the little sods. I I was going to say, well, you could murder it, but of course you have to live (laughs) with that with the rest of your life and you may well be put in prison. So uh, it's very different from being able to make a mark and then erase the mark. This is very different. You've kind of actually made something that can't be unmade. Yeah. Actually, by bringing up murder, you kind of uh, raise another interesting point, because this isn't just about expectations of the situation. Mm. I think people have the bigger problem in, in terms of how they expect to be able to cope with a big change like this themselves. You put a lot of expectation on yourself. And I think I definitely think with something like kids, the bigger part of the stress and anxiety comes from feeling that you aren't as good at being a parent as you thought you were. Most people, if they've made a a conscious decision to be a parent, they don't think they're going to be shit at it. They think they're going to be really good at it. But, I mean, you don't get a practice. It's not like you have a, a goal of being the world's greatest guitarist and you can spend the next five years starting, you know, meagerly by buying your first guitar and learning how to play, like, three chords, and then just learning and learning and learning and learning and practicing and practicing and practicing and practicing and and getting really good, and then you can kind of bring that talent into whatever band you join or as a solo artist, and and there are definitive steps. You don't get that sort of a practice run when you become a parent. You can watch other people do it, and um, if you're growing up in a family where you have younger brothers and sisters you can sort of see it from that angle but actually living it you can only do it live well and you're debilitated when you start as well it's not like when you start a new job and you try to get an early night the night before and you've ironed your shirts and all of that if you've got one um and you've ironed your trousers if you if you have to wear trousers and you make sure you get a full breakfast and all of that stuff you are so knackered 
apparently in the few days and weeks after having a baby that you're not going to be that good at it anyway i'm not expecting us to be that good at it my basic uh, expectations of myself in this situation and i'm keeping them really low and this is how i stay as well adjusted <laughs> as you know i think people know i am is i'm going to try not to drop it I'm going to try not to be neglectful and I'm not going to be mean to it unless it's been mean to me first. <laughs> and I think within those parameters, I can fulfill my expectation of myself and only exceed it. When you say mean, though, do you really mean passive aggressive? Well, no, I'll probably be passive aggressive. I mean, I'm going to be a parent, you know, <laughs> but I'm not going to actually be horrible to it unless, sure. you know, you think that that is horrible. But I mean, maybe that's the thing. Maybe once you remove smacking from the equation and the worst a child has to deal with is you occasionally rolling your eyes at them. <laughs> maybe that becomes abuse. I don't know. But they're going to have to get used to having eyes rolled at them because, frankly, even if I don't do it, Amy definitely will. It's kind of one of her best tricks. It works on me anyway. Maybe she won't do it to the child. Maybe she'll like them more than she does me. I don't know. What if every time the child does something that's, like, disappointing and Amy rolls her eyes, but at you? Well, then I'll think I've done something wrong. Your fault. <laughs> that's your genes, Nick. I'm going to uh, adapt my, uh, the thing that I, sometimes, I have sometimes in the past found myself doing at work, which is uh, modern, well, not just modern sitcoms, I think older sitcoms as well, where the... Uh, character who's just heard something ridiculous or had to deal with something horrible throws a look to the camera like a Seinfeld or something like that I think um look at me pretending I watched Seinfeld um <laughs> I'm going to end up doing that all the time. <laughs> Every time the child says something stupid or says god I hate you I'm just going to flash a look to an imaginary camera. Yep this is my life. I love the preview as well. Yeah, that I was going to ask about, about the preview, because obviously that's the first time I've ever had to bleep anything. Because I don't want sweary previews, that's why I bleeped it. Was it me? Was I swearing? It probably was me, wasn't it? We both did. You started it, but we both did. Because <laughs> it was the Richard Dawkins thing. That guy's a douchebag. It's funny, isn't it? Because like, for a while there, he was really amazing, and he was telling us things that we never really knew, apparently. And now we're all sick of him. <laughs> It's like, yeah, yeah, mate, okay, yeah. You're not quite David Icke, but we're going to put you in that direction. He was definitely telling a 14-year-old who realised they didn't enjoy going to church with their parents anymore stuff that they hadn't heard before. Yeah. The rest of us, we'd heard all of his stuff back when Darwin was doing it. <laughs> so, <laughs> it also really bugs me that Lal... Is it Lal Ward or Lala Ward? Lal Ward. The uh, ex-gorgeous Doctor Who companion. Oh, right. Yeah, Lal or Lala Ward. I think Lala Ward, actually. Lala Ward oh. is, is married to him, and that just seems desperately unfair. It's like if you found out that Felicity Kendall, instead of being married to Richard Bryars, was married to someone really shit. Her name, um, I, I, I can't believe her name's still allowed. It's an anachronism, isn't it? She should be called Psychiatric Ward now, surely? <laughs> Oh dear, I don't, I don't have anything to come back to that with. She used to be with Tom Baker. I don't, I don't think that was just on the TV programme. I think they used to be a couple. Oh, I'm sure Tom Baker did a few things. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think he probably did. Yeah. Hopefully all over 16. <laughs> it was well, the 70s. 
Oh, God, we were talking about that today as well. I actually uttered the words. Well, Michael Jackson's really the only one I feel sorry for. (laughs) Yeah, the whole yew tree thing is a subject we're not touching on this week. That's correct. (laughs) But one of my colleagues today actually uh, referred to someone as a bit of a Jimmy Savile, as if we we had never had paedophiles or people who liked teenagers before Jimmy Savile. (laughs) I'm glad John Pertwee's been dead for too long for them to go looking at him too closely. It's the, the possibility arises that you just start looking at anybody from back then with scepticism, whether they deserved it or not, just because mm. they looked like a particular type of man. No one's going to look at Roger Moore and think it. But if you were definitively British and slightly eccentric, then that sets the radar off. I bet they all... I mean, I bet Sean Connery and Roger Moore were as well. Especially Roger Moore, because the clue's in his name. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's practically an order. His parents (laughs) gave him an order when he was young. I feel sorry for uh, Michael Jackson, because he had a weird upbringing, but poor Roger. How many sons did he, Jack? That's the question. (laughs) Oh, ouch. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cheers, buddy. Take care. All the best to you and Amy, and I'll see you soon. Thank you. You, right. you too. Bye-bye. 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 What the f- Jesus Christ. <laughs>